Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy and what a spectacular couple of days. It's like Mother Nature took a look at the calendar and said, December 1st, let's get it on with summer, baby. Coincidentally, climate change and its impact on health is the topic of the show today. And we have two experts in the climate change arena to help us sort through all the issues. Now, decades ago, when he was a freshly minted junior doctor, still wet behind the ears, Dr. Grant Blaschke came onto radiotherapy and performed his song, The Doctor is Sicker Than You. It's, it actually became a number one hit in my household, so I'm so stoked to have now Associate Professor Blaschke back in the studio. Nowadays, Grant is a highly respected clinician and academic at the Nossel Institute for Global Health at Melbourne University. He's also the lead clinical advisor for Beyond Blue. And in a show of academic bipartisanship, he's also an adjunct associate professor at Monash University Sustainable Developmental Health Development Institute. Sorry, He's also actually a really great guy. Grant will be focusing his considerable skill and knowledge on the biggest threats to health posed by climate change. I'm also super excited to meet our next guest too. Guy Abrahams has been many things, starting off life as a lawyer, then morphing into a gallery director, and for more than, oh, for probably a bit more than the last decade really, he's been the founder of Climb Art. Climb Art is a not-for-profit organisation that uses art to highlight the climate emergency by bringing together artists and other socially related projects. And I love this phrase from Climb Art's landing page. I'm quoting here. The arts can not only show us, but indeed they can make us feel the very problems we're facing. It's a beautiful line, um, Guy. So much about behavioural changes, about feelings, which are notably resistant to facts and figures, no matter how terrifyingly true they may be. Guy will be talking with us about some of the great work that he and Climart are doing. Joining me on the panel will be Nurse EpiPen, who recently celebrated her 35th birthday, but is way more youthful than just a pure number alone, EpiPen. So stick with me, Dr. Mel, Nurse EpiPen, and our guests for what is sure to be a most exciting hour of health radio on a Sunday morning. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We've certainly got a lot of Christmassy elves in the studio this morning. We have indeed. So do you know the background of Christmas elves? No. In fact, when we came in, you said, do I know? And I said, no. And then you said, you'd tell me. So I'm, I'm hanging out. Okay. So as of the 1st of December, this is, I've never heard of this and I didn't do it with my kids, which I feel a bit sad about, but the 1st of December, the house is filled with little elves, toy elves, mm-hmm. outside, inside, and overnight they move around. And the kids wake up in the morning and they've noticed that the elves have moved. And the idea is that the elves have moved because they've wandered around the house to keep an eye on the kids. And if they're a do- bit naughty or if they're up late at night and doing silly things on their iPhone or whatever, 
And in the morning you come down and the elves have moved and they've gone, oh, God, the elves have been out and about. So the kids aren't allowed to touch the elves. But these elves are magical. There certainly are a lot of them. I think there's there's more than when we started, (laughs) when we came in here at 9 o'clock this morning, there's about five I know, they've bred. They've bred. They're they're breeding naughty elves. Yes, yes. So tell me, Ben, on the way in this morning, you said I've got some great ketchup. And I've been hanging out too. I've got three stories. Is that... That might, we might, I'll do them quickly. Oh. All, right, all right, okay. So the, I've been looking up, because we've got some really interesting, stimulating conversations later on, mm-hmm. I just thought let's look at some new inventions. So there's an eye knife that's been developed. So this is for surgeons yeah. and it, it produces, when they go into a wound for a cancer or somewhere, they have uh, a near instant feedback to help the surgeons distinguish between cancerous and healthy tissue surrounding the tumours. And the sc- scalpel works by analysing molecules of the smoke caused by the heat generated in surgery. So you are aware that we can cauterise blood vessels, which yeah. is like a little zapping iron that yeah, yeah. that stops them bleeding or what have you and yeah. they from that smell the eye knife can pick up whether it's cancerous or non-cancerous that is amazing because one of the big things with cancer surgery is getting clear margins isn't it so That's, to make sure that you've got the tumor all the way around and you're not leaving some of it behind that is incredible. absolutely so the eye knife is eliminating the margin of error and making surgery less invasive its success rate stands at 100% in 99 recent operations. That is incredible. So is this a sort of peer-reviewed journal or is it kind of no, marketing? No, it was just sort of like uh, what's the latest? Wow. I can't quote where it's from. So watch this space. But just basically. watch this space. An eye knife. I don't know why it's not an eye scalpel. Scalpel. Sca- scalpel. 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 <laughs> Scapula. <laughs> I thought I was the one that was hung over this morning. It's you. Okay, next one. Next one. Microchip organs. This is close to my heart. This is very technologically bad. Harvard researchers have created a spleen on a chip that cleanses blood and fights infections, like just like a real spleen. So it uses magnetic nanobeads coated with an engineering version of a human blood protein. What? I know what. Just these are the latest. What what does that mean? Like, well, it just means that the microchip binds to and removes the variety of bugs, bacteria, fungi, viruses, and turfs them out. So it basically does what a spleen does. Correct. You're joking. Yes. This is is amazing. So this is. I can quote someone on this one. Professor Donald Ingberg, director of the Harvard's Wyss Institute, has been working on this project. And so what, you implant this in somebody's body and it uh, just... When you take a spleen out, you pop the spleen, this little microchip thing in yeah. and it generates its own activities and clears the bugs. Look, it's early days, Mal. That is, that is amazing. Wow. Who would have thought a spleen because it's quite complicated. A very complicated and something I know a lot about. Yeah. Okay, now the best one, which will everybody in this room will be very interested in. So who's heard of the Ig Nobel Awards? Uh, I have. Good. So they're Harvard University Awards and it's their satirical prizes given annually since 1991 to celebrate 10 unusual or trivial achievements in scientific research. Its aim is to honour achievements that first make people laugh and then make them think. 
The name of the award is from the Nobel Prize yeah. and it parodies, parodizes, parodies on the word ignoble, not noble. Okay, Ig- so here we go. Misophonia. Who knows what that is? Uh, is that when you hear the wrong word? No, it's sound. It's sound. to do with a sound. When you say the wrong thing? Uh, do it no, all the time. it's a noise. So some patients report a preoccupation with a specific aversive human sound like loud chewing, foot tapping, pen clicking. So people people can get very upset with those and it triggers impulsive aggression. (laughs) This was an ignoble award? No, uh, it was one of the papers cited. I've got it here. Look. All right. It's on PLOS. On PLOS, okay. So our listeners, PLOS. So, um, What's the title of the paper? It's called Misophonia, Diagnostic Criteria for a New Psychiatric Disorder. So if I say something like moist, like uh, there, are, there are members of it's my family that noises, hate that It's more noises, not words. Word. I'll stop and go tap, 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 yes, tap. Yes, yes. And you get triggered by this. Yes. This is called a misophonia. Yes. Right. So my husband okay. chews sweets or whatever and I just go bonkers because <laughs> so he's a really loud chewer. So you've got misophonia. I've got misophonia. So it was really a big study, 42 patients, and the psychiatrists that interviewed them screened for other conditions like OCD, anxiety, and they were more highly – they were highly rated for the ones that triggered these responses. Right. So – Where was this done, this study, do you Oh, Leo, uh, what, where was it done? <laughs> it, it's, our panel is reading the paper. It's <laughs> fascinating. Yes, so it was published in 2013. Oh, okay, so and so it is old, but it did come up in the Ignoble Awards for 2022. Oh, so it took nine years to get to the Ignoble Awards. Yes. Okay. So it's uh, so. Have you ever heard of it? Have you seen it? Uh, I've certainly seen it. I didn't know it actually had a name. Now I can I can put a name to it and say, oh, you have misophonia. Because yes. I'm making you angry by my very loud choice. Very, and it's aggression. It's not being upset or bursting into tears. They go off the Richter scale. They flip into being really, really aggressive. Yeah, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, okay. so they're suggesting there should be more studies and to help people and people with this disorder and have a um, have it as a recognised psychiatric in, disorder in the, in the DSM. In the DSM. So in the nine nine years since that paper, has there been more research on um, misophonia? Have you um, done any research? I would look at you too. Okay, you look at me. Um, uh, clearly, uh, I need to do more research. But yeah. um, interesting, misophonia. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Misophonia. The, the stuff you come up with. I know. Is this how you spend well, your days? Well, it's Christmas. <laughs> it's Christmas, and I thought let's come a bit of left of centre. Now we've got a ton of sponsorship announcements to play, but we will be back after them with uh, Guy Abrahams and Grant Blaschke. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We've got Dr Muto doing the panel, and that's why it's sounding so slick, because normally I do it, and uh, there's lots of uh, the sounds of silence. Uh, welcome to Associate Professor Grant Blaschke. Hi, Rob. Great to be on your show. It's, it's been so long since you've been in the studio. Um, it is so good to have you back. Um, any memories of Triple R from when you first started? Well, we did have fun, I think, in the, the very first days. It must be, how long has the show been going? It feels like a couple of decades ago. It's been going for about 26 years, yeah. Yeah, pretty early days. I think I was, as you said, freshly 
freshly minted doctor and came and played a little bit of guitar and we had a bit of fun on that show back then. Yeah, and also on the Zoomer we have uh, Guy Abrahams. Now, Guy, can you hear us? I can hear I can hear you loud and clear, and it's great to be here. I'm always I'm always what's the word surprised <laughs> when technology works. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Guy. Now, Grant, set the scene for us. You know, w- climate and health, I mean, obviously they're going to be related, but give us the broad kind of scope of what we're looking at. Yeah, so I think anyone that's, you know, been paying attention to the media or the world in the last few years is pretty aware that we've got an urgent climate crisis. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's... You're getting, you're looking at media reports or scientific studies, um, or whether you're just using your eyes and your ears to see what's been happening. It's pretty clear that that climate change isn't this sort of nebulous future thing. And I think for Australia, as one of the driest continents in the world, you know, we saw some shocking bushfires, and now we've had the floods. Yeah. And this is all very consistent with what the modelling's been saying would happen with rising temperatures. So we're about 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial times now. But really what we do in the next decade is going to determine which sort of scenario, which pathway we're going to track. And we really want to avoid extreme warming. Yeah. I mean, if, if you could sort of take a helicopter view of the kind of impacts that climate is having on health, what would I see? Yeah, so look, I mean, the, the I like to think of it, we've got a lot of medical listeners among, amongst others, and, and really that the planet, I like to think of as a sick patient at the moment, <laughs> yeah. you know, and we're, if you imagine it like a diabetes situation, we're sort of, we've already got high sugar, you know, we're, in, yeah. we're into secondary prevention. And with these, you know, it doesn't sound like much, 1.1 degree, you think, oh, well, no yeah, big deal. You can't tell a difference in the bath or a cup of coffee, you couldn't tell a difference. Exactly, you know, but it has a huge impact because it is a complex system. Yeah. And so in regards to health, we get direct effects like people caught up in heat waves or floods or fires. But we have a lot of the flow-on effects as well, you know, economies being knocked about and displaced populations. And, of course, the other thing is changes in distribution of infectious diseases. So really a lot of those sort of global health problems get very much amplified by climate change. And the one that I'm particularly interested, particularly working at Beyond Blue and having worked in mental health for a long time and speaking to a psychiatrist right now... um, you know, the mental health impacts of this are huge. I mean, you just look in Australia and people have been caught up in these extreme weather events. Yeah. And one last point to make there, I think for a lot of young people and, and quite a few of the listeners, there is this sort of existential worry. Hmm. You know, they've got this sort of sense of background, what the hell's going on? Where yeah. are we going? What's this all going to look like? And so it's all pretty scary for people. Yeah. Guy, you came into this field through a... I mean, you came in through law then into being a director of an art gallery and now you're primarily focused on climate change and the, the emergency ahead of us. Tell us, tell us I mean, a bit about yourself, how you got into that area and also what your organisation is doing about it. Okay, so look, first I just should say, I, I, although I'm a co-founder of Fine Art, I'm now not on the board, I'm, 
I've got the lofty title of ambassador, so I see the world, you know, with my CC CC number plate. But um, and we founded it with uh, I co-founded it with uh, Deborah Hart and Fiona Armstrong, who's also um, in the health space, um, director of uh, CAHA Climate and Health Initiative. So there's people working across across streams. Look, as a lawyer and as someone who studied art um, university, they were they were sort of um, my interests, but environment was all, always a major interest. And, um, you know, I joined the Australian Conservation Foundation when I was at university when I was 17, um, followed conservation issues for, for many decades. When climate change sort of really was pushed onto the, onto the scene through Al Gore's um, documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, that, for me, was a moment of reckoning. And, in fact, I've got to blame Grant for meeting him at, I think it was a Christmas party, a mutual friend, he was the person who said, listen, go off and do something about it. Don't just keep, you know... Because at that stage, I'd been in an art gallery for, for 20 years, which was an amazing experience. Um, you know, witnessing the creativity of, of artists and their absolute commitment to providing a vision, their vision, and putting it out there in the public. So inspiring. But it made me think, you know, how can the arts engage with this existential crisis? Mm. And you only have to look back um, at recent history and the long span of history to see that the arts have been, and I'm, I put all the arts, culture generally, is a way of reflecting and projecting how we see our predicaments. Mm. The church used art as a sort of propaganda means. Mm. Um, you walk into any beautiful Renaissance church and there the stories are laid out for you. Um, famous 20th century artists like Picasso used art as a way of waking us up to war, um, the horrors of war through paintings such as Guernica. More recently in Australia, the wonderful photographs of Peter Dombrovskis, uh, Rock Island Bend, showed us the beauty of the Franklin River mm. and was really uh, credited with changing the, ho- the way the whole nation um, saw the wilderness down there and eventually saving it. So art has an incredible power. I studied climate change science and policy at Melbourne University, also partly grants the blame for that. And after looking at reams of um, graphs and data and information, I realised that for many people, probably not the people listening to this show, but for many people out there, numbers and graphs and all that sort of statistical information doesn't really cut through on an emotional level, Mm. whereas the arts really does that. So the thought was how can we harvest, how can we utilise that emotional power of the art to engage people on climate change? And that's really when we came together about 12 or 13 years ago to form Climate to try and bring together um, a, a coalition of people involved in the art. I think Grant is uh, responsible for a lot of people's uh, career trajectories. I was having a coffee with him about 10 years ago and he said, you know, Mal, do you think you need to do something else apart from psychiatry? And I thought, oh, yeah, writing. And so 10 years later, here I am. Um, Grant, you were about to say something? Yeah, Guy, that's that's very nice for you to mention our, our catch-up. But I think it's something really instructive for people listening because, honestly, you probably find this guy too because you've had such an active role in this area. But, you know, people come to you and they want to do something. You know, we can talk about all the emotions and it's very easy to go down the plug hole of despair and mm. which can actually be a bit paralysing. Mm. You're like, oh, well, why would I do anything? Mm. And so if you can get over 
in my case and everyone's case, your own sort of grandiosity that you're going to save the world. Like no single person's going to do that. And find out what's your little piece of the puzzle. What can you lean into? Mm. You know, for me as a GP, someone in mental health, that's sort of where I put my efforts. Mm. And for Guy, the way he's knitted together the arts um, and climate change is amazing. And I couldn't agree more. You know, um, I was one of the bunnies going out giving these sort of Al Gore inconvenient truth climate talks all around mm. the country. And I thought, oh, this is great. Once people know that there's a problem, of course they'll change. Mm. You know, so there's just an information deficit. And once they see the graphs, they'll be onto it. Mm. And guys, absolutely right. You've got to speak to people's hearts, mm. their spirit. You know, it's much more mm. than just a few facts. Mm. So, um, Grant, when you were saying that you were trying to touch the court, people's hearts and cords about um, their responsibility towards this. What sort of things can people do? I know, I know there's so much about this and it's been told to us, but we need reminders, we need top-ups. Yeah, so look, I like to think of this in sort of three main ways of coping, all right? So problem-based coping, so really practical. So, And what I generally say to people is try and do one thing a day. You know, I'm no environmental saint, but try and do one thing a day. Now, it might be a big thing. It might be that you're actually going to go and visit your minister and put pressure on them. It might be a little thing that you're going to actually put on those solar panels or whatever it is you're going to do. Every little bit helps. So problem solving is a great stress reliever. The second approach I call emotion-based coping, and that is really about realising this is a bit of a marathon and there's a lot of ups and downs. And anyone that throws their head into this and actually understands the science will have a bloody hell moment, right? <laughs> you know, every year when we run our master's subject at Melbourne Uni and I get the smart climate people, I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> so within that, be aware of your emotions. Like, back off if it's too much. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of young people walking around feeling very guilty, you know, mm-hmm. sort of self-flagellating. Yeah. I, I'm a believer that you know, I only get so far with guilt. Yeah. I, I reckon this has really got to be a joy thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm not it's very nice construction, yeah. Well, I, I, was, I was lucky to speak with a terrific lady, Jolene, Gerges, who's just written a book called Humanity's Moment. Oh. She led the climate chapter in yeah. the IPCC. Great. Can I just ask you to talk a little bit closer to your mic? But you sure. Should go. Yep. Led the climate chapter in the IPCC and has written a very heartfelt book about the emotional roller coaster. she went on it. And you need to have, hold that paradox yeah. of being realistic that there's a lot going on Mm. and it's pretty serious science, and at the same time keeping the joy in life, the enthusiasm, Mm. and continuing to make an effort. I need to mention it's not too late, and Mm. you speak to these top scientists like Jolene, we've got a decade, and we really... It's not a sort of throw-up-your-hands situation. There's lots we can do, and there's some science happening. I'll just quickly mention the third Mm. category, Mm. which is meaning-based coping. Mm. And what I mean by that is if you can link your actions and, and care for this to what is meaningful to you. It might be religious, it might be you might be an atheist and it's just the wonder of the universe. Um, it might be your ex- extra generations, you know, I've got a new little grandchild now and that's incredibly motivating for me. But link it to what's most meaningful to you and you become an unstoppable force. Three beautiful pieces of, of advice. So the first one 
is um, make sure that you try and just do one thing a day. That's a very nice, even if it's small, even if it's, I don't know, what, what, might, what might it be? I used to, you know what, because I, I use that with, uh, with teaching uh, medical students about learning to experience different things. So I say, brush your teeth with your left hand if you're right-handed once a day. See if there's a difference. You know, order something off the menu. See, see what the experience is. So the idea of just doing something meaningfully for the climate, uh, one thing a day is terrific. The emotion you put into it is the second thing that you talked about, which is really, really um, important as well. And attaching that to some meaning, something tangible. That's three great pieces of advice. Tell me, Guy, how do you actually... Um, address such a huge issue in your life? Well, first, I've just been writing down Grant's points because I think they're, they're fabulous yeah. and, I, and I reflect on them every day. I think um, to summarise some of what Grant said, action is the antidote to despair. Um, we all go, you know, as Grant said, we all have that, oh, my God, moment. If you've looked at the science and we think, well, there's the despair. And there's also grief. There's a grief about losing a world which we think we have. And I think that if we can get involved in action, that is a real fantastic way of pushing those, those feelings aside and feeling that you're part of the solution, not just part of the problem. Um, I get asked a lot, and I'm sure Grant does as well, um, are you hopeful? Is there any hope? Hope is a word which seems to come up more and more often in discussions that I have with all sorts of people especially young people. I just read yesterday that Mission Australia have just done a, 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 a 21st annual survey on the, the attitudes of youth, and over 50% of young people rate climate change and environmental sort of eco-anxiety up there in their one or two, top one or two concerns. Um, and I think we've got to be honest about hope. Hope's not just... Um, the sort of hope that she'll be right, mate, isn't really going to cut it. That's the sort of hope of abandonment we let someone else do it. Hmm. Um, the hope that we're looking for is, is really courageous. You've got to be brave. You've got to go in there and do your part. The, the, the wonderful um, reality is that humans have done incredible things to get over ama- you know, unbelievable um, challenges in the past. And every little thing we do in terms of restricting our emissions, um, drawing them down, doing the right thing for our land, um, uh, realising the incredible value of our Indigenous cultures and how they cared for the land. Mm. All those things kick us up towards a better place in the future. The future's not certain. How do you both cope with people that say to you, oh, look, come on, Grant, Guy, you know, you know, just because you're riding to work or taking you know the tram, you're not using a car. Come on, that's nothing. That's not going to affect anything. You know, it's just a drop in a huge ocean. Really, what do you say to people that say that to you? Uh, so, I mean, there's a couple of things. All of us have sort of various defences, and and Mal, with your mental health background, mm. I'm probably you're probably very aware of it. Mm. And they can be quite clever. You know, they can be anything from saying, oh, well, it's just not happening, like good mm. old-fashioned scepticism, mm. um, through to despair, well, there's no point doing anything. Mm. Mm. But there's a whole lot of other nuanced sort of ideas um, that, you know, approaches people have, little bits of tokenism. Mm. Okay, well, I've recycled one plastic bag, so that should do it, mm. you know. So, you know, I think we all have...
have these, but I, I couldn't agree more with what Guy said. I think hope, there are different sorts of hope. Mm. Um, one way of thinking about it is Pollyanna hope, mm. like, oh, it'll all just work mm-hmm. out. But I really like that idea of a sort of a mature, grounded hope, which is you realise it's a problem, but we're going to do something. And, mm. and I think particularly some of your medical audience mm. who are used to breaking bad news to people where, you know, the odds aren't great or they might be starting a, a pretty long shot treatment. But maintaining hope is actually crucial. Mm. Um, I think the other thing, as Guy said, is for some people they do need to sort of grieve about it. You know, they can't just sort of wallpaper over the cracks. Mm-hmm. And once they sort of, it, it lands and they're like, oh, this is serious. Or they might be experiencing in their own area, their local bushlands are burnt down and they can see it on a day-to-day basis. And there's lots of groups now who are doing more sort of grief counselling for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's got a place as well. One other thing I'd say, which I think is is difficult, is there are a lot of people as you would know, Mal, who have depression and anxiety in our community. You know, in any one year in Australia, it's about 2 million people have anxiety and about 1 million have depression. So I'm always really cautious as a GP to find out where people are at because sometimes these sort of existential environment worries find a very welcome home with a sort of a nihilistic worldview. And mm. so to try and untangle that a bit mm. and go, well, hang on, are you you're just depressed mm. or mm. is this, you know, have you got worried about this? So sometimes untangling that mm. in the real world's a bit hard. Mm. What about yourself, Guy? How, how do you address that when someone says, oh, come on, really? You know, so you're riding your bike, big deal. You're not going to make a difference. Yeah, well, I, I do get that sometimes. And <clears throat> as someone who became a vegetarian, you know, um, back in the days of Peter Singer lecturing me at, at Monash University, but I still wear a leather belt. Um, you know, people say, well, you're wearing a leather belt. What's, uh, you know, what are you, what are you saying? Everyone's got to do the degree of action that they can do, comfortably do. No one's doing perfect, perfect amounts of action. Um, so I think um, it, it's a cheap shot to say what you're doing doesn't count. What studies have found, I'm sure Grant would back me up on this, is people who do start doing small actions in the world generally go on to do larger actions. So if you become conscious of issues like the environment, by recycling a bit more, by walking instead of driving or riding your bike, you start to tune in to the broader issues. And generally you go on an escalating path towards more action and more involvement, whether it's political or community-based. So you can look at it as a step-by-step process. Mm -hmm. Nice. Just one other thing to mention there is I think there is some risk as well that we sort of push this down the road to sort of individual motivation and individual action. Mm. And the reality is this is a complex systems issue. Mm. You know, we need right up from the international level with international agreements through to nations, through to states, through to local governments to have major policies that make it easy for Mm. people. Um, and one other point I want to throw in there is we're all capable of splitting. So we're the good guys and those awful fossil fuel people are the bad guys, mm. you know. And the reality is most of us in a country like Australia are somewhat 
in it and we've got to take everyone with us and it and, and it's very easy to, to you know fall into that sort of pious or we're the good people you know it's not black and white i think is what you're saying that yeah it's much more nuanced than than just a, a snapshot in black and white uh, pin so two things that i've heard people say is oh well china we haven't got a chance what's the point and the other one is what Guy was alluding to, the survey of young people. So I've my children are young in their 20s who say we're not having kids. The world is too unsafe. The world's going to implode. You know, how, how, do, you answer, how, how do you answer those two issues? Oh, there's some nice simple questions. You don't have an, <laughs> an, you don't, you don't an EpiPen on you by any chance just to get my adrenaline up. Look, I think a couple of things. First of all, with regards to China and, and other countries around the world, you know, we're part of a global problem and, you know, carbon doesn't know whether it came from England or America or, or China. But it's not written where China's going to be on all this. I mean, a lot of the countries like India and China have been done the most miraculous mm. job at pulling people out of poverty... And, you know, there's Australia at, what is it, 27 tonnes of CO2 per person, and they're, you know, China's way less than that. They're also, in terms of scale, uh, absolutely cranking out the solar panels, mm. and they're in the green technology race now. Mm. And as with many things, when they get their eye in, they're going to be a huge contributor. Mm. But it's a balance, and many countries and developing countries around the world as well will go, well, hang on, you've just had two centuries benefiting of fossil fuels getting rich getting your, you know, health status of your population is fantastic. Mm. We need to get people out of poverty. We, we've got 300 million people with no toilets, mm. you know. Mm. So, so it's a bit of a balance. To your second point, I think people's choice about families is very, um, is up to them. And, and I respect people's autonomy to make whatever choices they want. The only thing I would say is I do note, and I sort of alluded to it, a slight trend of sort of hopelessness or self-flagellation and, and, you know, that somehow there's no future. And it's just not consistent with what the science is telling us. Mm -hmm. We absolutely have an opportunity in this 10 years. And as one of my med students pointed out, it's incremental, mm -hmm. right? Like, 1.5 degrees would be pretty good. Mm. Four degrees would be a disaster. But anything, every little point one of a degree less mm. of a problem we have is well worth the effort. Mm. The other thing I'd say to young people, if you're worried about it, study your ass off. Like, mm. be brilliant. We need, Australia needs fantastic people. And there's huge opportunities. Mm. I mean... If they're talking about these zero emissions for states and hospitals mm. and governments, they're going to need to employ people mm. and they are going to need smart people. So be part of the solution. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of cause for optimism and you've got to look at it in the historical perspective. They've always been global issues. Yeah, yeah. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We, we've sort of covered a bit of the broad brushstrokes about how to think about, how to talk about the climate 
sort of emergency, I guess. Well, I don't want to use that word now because I'm feeling it's a little bit too... It might actually make people feel nihilistic about climate change. Grant, what do you do when people come to you with these, like, specific questions about, how can I help, Grant? What am I going to do? Yeah, so um, I'm sorry that Guy's signal went down a little bit there because I think the art and his whole work he's doing in that area is a fantastic way to communicate to people. Um, Some of the experiences that I have that are useful is think a lot about your audience. Think who you're talking to. You know, are they kids? Are they teachers? Are they business leaders? You know, what what actually makes sense to them? Mm. And um, I think that's the first thing. The second thing is stories. You know, uh, stories, stories, narratives, so much more powerful than the most sort of full-on graphs, you know, much more relatable and also make it local. Um, You know, in Australia, I think that when we saw the big, you know, the fires up in uh, northern New South Wales, I just think people couldn't believe it. And, you know, we had this smoke sort of pouring down over the cities and places that really hadn't had fires for so long. Um, suddenly we're under threat. So when you hear a story, and currently people still in the midst of these, you know, extreme floods, it's there's nothing abstract about it. You know, Mm. people get it. People aren't stupid. Mm. They're like, you can't have a one in a thousand year flood every year, right? Mm. (laughs) Like, they know what's going on. (laughs) Like, they're not silly. So I think that they're very powerful. Visual images, metaphors, stories... Mm. This is the sort of the currency that I think really resonates for people. Mm. Um, there's been some discussion about the timing of addressing these things. So let people get over the grief and the tragedy and, and then we'll talk about it later on. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, look, it's a balancing act, right, because no one's going to take kindly when their house is flying down the river mm. and you're going, hey, I just wanted to have a little chat to you about the IPCC report. Mm. They won't appreciate it, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to be sensitive. I think in terms of sort of people's emotional response after extreme weather events, there's a few things we know. First of all, we don't need to over-medicalise it. A lot of people, most people cope pretty well, you know, with their family and their friends and their resources. They actually cope pretty well. doesn't mean they're not suffering and that they're not having a time, but they don't have a mental health condition, you know, they're just having a hard time. Mm. Uh, There are a significant minority of people who do go on in the coming weeks and months Mm. to get, you know, problems like anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress. Don't forget as well, you know, we see this rallying of communities that's quite beautiful, Mm. you know, when things are happening. I saw during those floods, everyone stepped up, was filling in the sandbags Mm. and, you know, Mm. it's a great sense of sort of community spirit. And then that all sort of settles down and people are like, oh, I don't have my shop anymore and mm. where are the kids going to go and have a kick of the footy and I don't know if my insurance covers my house. Mm. And, you know, the real world sort of hits people. So I think these sort of responses are there. Um, your question, I, I don't know that there's a right timing for, you know, you need some sensitivity around well, why are there bad floods? Why is there fires? But I think that a lot the mature conversation in Australia is people like, if you look at all the surveys, climate change is right up there. People mm. are worried. Guy, let's see if we can get you back. You got me now? Fantastic. That's great. Fantastic. So I was just going to say that Climate has now uh, opened, or recently opened, a permanent art gallery 
uh, climate gallery in Climate Art Gallery in Bridge Road, Richmond, mm-hmm. and it's one of the first climate dedicated art galleries in the world. Um, and they've got a fantastic series of exhibitions on. They just had one on the forest of Victoria, looking at you know how we're logging our forests you know to death. Mm. Um, but also inspiring things. There's a show on at the moment about food and the whole food production system and artistic. Um, explorations of what that means, both on a personal level and, you know, more systemically. Mm. I'd also just like to say, you know, as Grant said, there's different communities coming together. With my legal, my old legal hat on, I can tell you that there's some incredible um, litigation going on at the moment in Australia and around the world, focusing on the health impacts of climate change Mm. and how we can use existing laws, both international laws and domestically Australian laws, to... um, make governments and companies take notice of precisely the health impact that climate change is causing right now and will cause in the future. Uh, And some of them are having really quite historic um, outcomes. Just last week, um, a land court in Queensland uh, ruled that Clive Palmer's massive coal mine, which was going to be one of the largest in Victoria, shouldn't go ahead because it was going to affect the human rights and the health of, indig- of the local Indigenous people. That's an incredible result. And these sorts of things are being mirrored around the world in, in various legal actions. I, I do like what both of you have said, uh, that a way of addressing, uh, you know, what's in front of us to do with climate change uh, is to tell stories, either through art or through a narrative somehow. And it, it brings me back to, a you know, to this is fairly trite but when you when i'm lecturing you know one of the first things that you're told when you're lecturing is to tell a story because again you can show graphs and statistics but students don't remember those graphs and they don't remember those statistics they will remember the story of a young man who presented to his gp and da 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 and they can paint a picture in their head and so often you know you hear that politicians are, you know they may get you know, graphs again, you know, thrown across their desk, but it's when they meet somebody who has been through a bushfire or a flood or something like that, that story actually then goes into legislation. It's, you know, we're built storytellers, you know, look at the artwork from, you know, from caves and so forth. You know, people have been telling stories for tens of thousands of years. It's, it's, it's sort of built, built into our genes. And I, and I really, this is what I like about what both of you have brought to the table about climate action is it's about through... Not so much just you know pummeling us with statistics. It's about you know telling stories and showing art and 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 actually looking at our feelings more so than the sort of the, the cognitions and the thoughts, which you know they, I actually think they're secondary. It's, it comes first with feelings. Um, just talking about feelings and anxiety and depression, it's really hard to find someone to talk to. So psychologists, I've been trying to help a friend see a psychologist. Well, they're all booked out. They're doing things online, but it's there's a crisis there to support people with that are um, struggling with mental health post COVID or during the COVID pandemic, especially. Yeah, I, I mean, I think really it sort of contextualizes the worry at the moment about extreme weather events and climate. But of course, there's been a cascade of issues. You know, it was COVID, and at the moment, cost of living expenses are really hammering people. Um, the workforce, the mental health workforce, um, is an ongoing challenge. Mm. I mean, I'm always slightly cautious with that because, I mean, it's very easy for people to go, we don't have enough, we need more and more, and we do. But I always have to ask also compared to what? 
you know, when I look around the world and do some work in Indonesia or, or China or, you know, some mm. of the other developed countries, we've got a pretty good system, but it's not perfect. And I think that some of the solutions around this issue may be training more and more sort of... Um, non-specialists, you know, GPs, nurses... I'm with your uh, brother. Social so, workers. Social workers, yeah. Aboriginal health workers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at Beyond Blue, we've got a, a system where we train coaches yep. called Fantastic. the New, New Access Coaching. It's free. Anyone can call it and you can have a telehealth or a phone call. It's very... They aren't, they aren't mental health, health trained people in the sense of a degree. Mm. They've done six weeks training yeah. and they have... Um, regular supervision, but they're great for people who have got particular problems they're trying to solve and they've got quite strict criterion about refer people up. Okay, this mm, person's mm. suicidal or this person needs more complex, specialised mm. care. Mm. But that's a whole other uh, discussion about how do we structure our workforces. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so much... Uh, a lot of the issues, and I'm going to come to Guy in a second, um, a lot of the issues end up in the mental health uh, basket or, or, or the mental health area, but they start way earlier and they can be addressed way earlier with social uh, interventions. And, I, you know, I, I, we don't need to wait <laughs> till they get to GPs and psychiatrists and psychologists. We need to start much, much, much earlier. Uh, Guy, you were about to say something. Yeah, yeah I just want to say um, there... You know, there's a lot of great literature out there and popular um, books, um, and a lot of it's on the doom and gloom, but there are some fantastic books about hope and the way forward. And one of them, which I know Grant is aware of, and I'll give a plug here, is by John Wiseman from the University of Melbourne. It's called Hope and Courage in the Climate Crisis. And it's a beautiful compilation of philosophical ideas, of religious ideas, of reason ideas, looking back at Plato and Aristotle and forward to all sorts of things. And as a sort of primer in the different ways that we can approach this climate crisis with hope and with courage, I would highly recommend it, not only for people who are having their sort of own personal crises about this, but I think for medical practitioners as a way of looking into the different avenues and ways of speaking to patients who have different um, different challenges with this topic. Grant, what's happening in the medical course? Are we teaching much about climate change and, and health? Yeah, so fortunately we've actually seen a drastic increase uh, across the medical schools that are actually starting to take climate change and health seriously. Uh, one of my students developed up a, an article sort of outlining what would go in the curriculum of such a course. But I think more broadly around the world, I know that they're looking at how do we use primary care and prepare primary care for managing the various health fallout from climate change. So I think definitely the health workforce. One other thing to throw in there is apart from the health workforce being sort of like responding to the problem, our health sector in Australia actually emits 7% of our emissions Really? Yep. Hospitals, transport, procurement, really? you name it. Even though a lot of the anaesthetic gases, nitrogen, oxide, they all contribute very significantly. So there's quite a big push now. And I know some of the universities have got new professors of health and sustainability are really engaging the health sector. So not only are we helping downstream, mm. but we're actually, how do we reduce our emissions? And no doubt... All those directors of those hospital boards are going to get the memo. Hey, listen, 
we've also got to be, you know, zero by whatever year it is. And how are we going to do that? Yeah, because one of the things that's always sort of puzzled me or intrigued me about, uh, I guess, the medical system is the enormous amount of waste that, you know, you'd use a... I mean, obviously, you'd use a syringe once. Of course, you've got to use a syringe once. And you'd use gloves once and masks once. And sure, you have to do that. There are lots of other things we do that with. And the amount of waste that generates is just... There, there's mountains of it. So it's a huge challenge. I don't know what you do with that. Well, it is a big challenge. But also, as usual with these things, common sense helps a lot too. Yeah. Like the least environmentally destructive test is the one that you don't have. Right? <laughs> and you probably re- remember, Mal, in your hospital days that people would just write out 50 yeah. tests. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they could say, oh, can we have that every day? Yeah. Um, and similarly, you know, so first of all, what we call choosing wisely, like yeah, yeah. not doing investigations that you don't need. Yeah. But beyond that, procurement, is enormous contributor to that travel? Um, what do you mean by procurement? No, I mean buying, like right. pharmaceuticals. Uh, I can see EpiPen nodding her head. Yeah, yeah I mean the plastic. Think about an operation and how much plastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one of my uh, former PhD students looked at: should you use single use or should you autoclave things? Yeah, um, a fantastic fellow associate professor Forbes McGain looked at that mm-hmm. and he's become a bit of a legend on all things you know sustainable in the hospital sector so but then you get into this kind of difficult economy don't you because uh, you know autoclave means to heat up very very hot so it kills all the bacteria but then I'm thinking you know there's a lot of energy that goes into autoclaving things and so how do you take account of that compared to throwing out the single use well you, you bang on there because that's what it came down to oh, I mean if yeah. the electricity is coming from brown coal yeah. it's <laughs> sort of like hey let's use another one yeah. um, so you know there, there's all but these, this whole sort of revolution's arriving at the hospital yeah. sector. Well, it's great that we're thinking about it. If you've got one minute to, and you actually literally have one minute each, to uh, give us your parting words about this particular issue, where, what would you be saying, Guy? I'd be saying get involved. Um, get active. Join an organisation. There's lots of organisations. Whatever community you, you or interest you have, there is a group out there that is doing something and there is nothing better than meeting like-minded people mm-hmm. and working with them and feeling I'm part of it, I'm not alone. Terrific stuff. What about you, Grant? I really agree with Guy. I think it's fantastic. It's really not something to try and solve on your own. Link up with like-minded people. If you're a medico, join Doctors for the Environment Australia. If you're in the health sector, um, generally, Climate and Health Alliance is amazing. It's like Climate and Health Alliance. Yeah, right. so one of Guy and I, our colleagues, Fiona Armstrong, yeah. started it, and it's extraordinarily effective at really writing policies that have been taken up by the government and being very powerful advocates on climate change and health. So um, highly recommend, like, get involved. Don't try and do it on your own. No. And, and as I said before, one thing a day, put it in your diary, the habit. I, I love that. Or, 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 or quickly, um, donate to something that's there, where they're doing something. If you can't, haven't got the energy, Greenpeace, there are a lot of environmental organisations. And I'm just going to say before, if anybody's worried about any of this, Lifeline is on one three double one one four. Double one, one Sorry, three. Sorry, one, one three, double one, one four. <laughs> That's right. I can't see. No. One three, one one, one four. Life That's one. Right. Sorry, you got it right. Hi, this is Panel Beater. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.